Good afternoon. I'm Jim Goldgeier uh, from American University and the Brookings Institution, and delighted to welcome you to this conversation on the role that multilateral institutions and multi and bilateral summits have played in the evolution of US-Russian relations. Today's discussion is the third installment of the Kennan Institute's Facebook Live series. Uh, and before we begin, I want to remind the audience that you can submit questions directly on the Facebook Live chat on Twitter at Kennan Institute uh, or via email to Kennan at WilsonCenter.org. Uh, we're going to start uh, with remarks from my Georgetown University colleague, Angela Stent. Uh, and uh, then we'll have a, a brief conversation and then we will uh, start to answer the questions uh, that you pose. So with that, uh, I turn it over to Dr. Angela Sten. Thank you very much, Jim. I'm delighted to be part of this conversation. Um, uh, I do, I direct the Center for Eurasian, Russian and East European Studies at Georgetown University. Um, so I was just going to make a few preliminary remarks before we get into our discussion. Uh, when I first looked at the title of this, I thought it sounds a little bit Soviet, but um, I think there is quite a bit to say about both multilateral and bilateral institutions and summits. So I think the first thing to mention if you're talking about the US-Russian relationship is this is a relationship with very few stakeholders. Our economic relationship has always been quite limited. We've never had broad groups of citizens in either country that have had continuous and structured interactions. Um, and really the most intense kinds of interactions between Americans and Russians um, at the government level at least has been security specialists. Because of course what distinguishes our relationship with Russia is that we are the world's two nuclear superpowers um, and uh, those issues really at the core is what drives the relationship and that hasn't changed between the Soviet period and the post-Soviet period. So the focus of the relationship has always been bilateral. It's been that core security nuclear relationship. Um, in the Soviet and post-Soviet times, obviously, from the Russian point of view, there was always a desire to be treated as an equal by the United States. And I would say in the Soviet period, and even since then, the main reference point for Russia has been the United States. It's not Europe, it's not China. We can talk about whether that's going to change, but it really has been this focus, this obsession might one might say with the United States. And because there hasn't been a large group of stakeholders in this relationship, the personal diplomacy, those bilateral summits have been really disproportionately important in this relationship. And so when the presidents get on with each other, um, and we could say as Clinton and Yeltsin did in the early years, um, as George W. Bush and Vladimir Putin did in the early years, and certainly as Obama and Medvedev did, then the relationship is strengthened, it's bolstered. When they don't get on, and that's certainly true of the relationship between President Obama and President Putin in his second term, uh, then it can be much more complicated to get the relationship moving. The second point I wanted to make, and here I will now quote Bill Clinton, um, is that um, uh, Russia has been really, uh, or the Russians are lousy joiners. Um, understandably, Russia sees itself as a great power. Um, it's been reluctant to join multilateral organizations whose rules it didn't set, whose agenda it just has to accept. It prefers to be in organizations where it dominates the agenda. Think in the Soviet period of the Warsaw Pact or Comic-Con, and in the post-Soviet period, the Collective Security Treaty Organization, 
the Eurasian Economic Union. Um, of course, in something like the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, it jointly sets the rules with the Chinese um, and the other countries, and the same is true of the BRICS. But still, the idea of joining an organization um, in which the West really dominates the agenda has been difficult. But um, I think another important point to make is um, that in the 1990s, certainly, Russia did seek to join a number of multilateral clubs. Um, I've just finished reading the memoirs of Andrei Kozarev, the first Russian uh, foreign minister, and he says quite explicitly, we wanted to join all of these clubs because that was our way of, quote unquote, joining the West and moving along a path towards greater pluralism, a market economy, and really being integrated with the West. So that was in the 1990s. Now, of course, the Yeltsin era is long gone. I would question whether Vladimir Putin wants to be integrated with the West, but Russia does want now to have a seat at the table on all important international decisions. It wants to be a member of the global board of directors, and therefore it does still seek to join multilateral organizations, but really for different reasons. And so two of those are the World Trade Organization, and the OECD, which Russia is still seeking to join. Um, so I think today um, we're going to talk about the most important bilateral structures in the relationship, of, uh, certainly focusing on the arms control agenda, the security relationship. Um, I think we'll also say something about the two bilateral commissions uh, under Presidents Clinton and Obama um, and what they did or did not achieve. And then we will talk about multilateral structures, the G7 and the G8, uh, the various NATO-Russia organizations, that is to say the Permanent Joint Council, and then the NATO-Russia Council. Uh, we'll talk about the United Nations P5, the five permanent members of the Security Council, uh, the World Trade Organization, and then we'll probably move on to things like the Arctic Council uh, and talk about how much influence any of these multilateral organizations have actually had on the bilateral relationship. Um, Jim co-authored with Mike McFall the book Power and Purpose. It gives you a great uh, accounting of the US-Russian relationship in the 1990s. So maybe Jim, you would like to begin by talking a little bit about the Bill Boris relationship on the one hand, so the bilateral relationship, the arms control, Gorcher and Amirden, the contact group for the former Yugoslavia, which was, of course, a multilateral organization of sorts, um, and of course, the Permanent Joint Council. Great, well, thanks, Angela, for getting us started here. And uh, thanks for mentioning uh, the book that Mike and I wrote. Uh, in that regard, I also wanna mention, uh, Angela's written, of course, a number of amazing books. And one of the books that I use for my class on US-Russia relations is her book, The Limits of Partnership which covers not only the period that Mike and I covered, but then brings us uh, very much uh, almost to the present uh, and is really a, a great overview and helps us see why we've had uh, uh, so many difficulties in, in getting sustained cooperation between the United States and Russia. So just mentioning a few of the specific organizations and building off of Angela's important point about this issue of equality status, Russia being seen as an equal, something that's been important. It's really, Khrushchev uh, writes about this a lot in his memoirs. It seemed like the Soviets had finally, under the Brezhnev period, achieved that equality. Then, of course, came the collapse and uh, the effort by Putin since he became president to rebuild that. If we look at a couple of the key institutions where uh, Russia does have 
uh, a role to play. Uh, the United Nations is perhaps the most important. There it is, one of the five permanent members with veto power. And we've seen in the history of the United Nations. In 1950, the Soviets were boycotting the UN and the United States was able to have uh, a UN authorized response to the uh, invasion by North Korea of the South. Uh, the Soviets didn't make that mistake again, uh, and we ended up with a stalemate during the Cold War. At the end of the Cold War, the hopeful sign was the first Gulf War, where the Soviet Union joined the United States, something that we would not have seen during the Cold War, uh, in uh, support of responding to Saddam Hussein's invasion of Kuwait. Uh, but we're sort of now back into that pattern where the United States and Russia uh, are uh, on opposite sides in a lot of the UN conversations. Uh, Libya uh, was maybe the exception that proves the rule where the Russians abstained and allowed a UN resolution to go forward. And Putin was angry afterwards, uh, believing that, uh, the, that NATO had gone beyond its mandate in carrying out regime change. On arms control, uh, we, tend, we don't tend to think of arms control as an institution, but in, in, with respect to this conversation about multilateral and bilateral uh, institutions and formats, let's remember the role that arms control has played over the past 50 years in regulating the competition. We had strategic arms limitation and then reduction after the end of the Cold War. We had an anti-ballistic missile treaty that sought to preserve the notion of mutual assured destruction in the relationship to try to, in the belief that that would create stability in the nuclear relationship. Uh, and uh, we've been on a path of decline uh, in arms control and may soon be moving into a post-arms control world. Uh, the United States walked away from the anti-ballistic missile treaty in the first term of George W. Bush. Uh, there was the agreement that was reached between President Obama and Medvedev the New START agreement, but it expires in February of 2021. And unless the United States decides uh, that it wants to continue it, uh, we won't have the New START agreement that Vladimir Putin has, uh, has seemed uh, to, in fact, desperately want to extend. We've also seen the collapse of the International Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty, the INF Treaty, signed between Reagan and Gorbachev in 1987, uh, and the Open Skies Agreement allowing overflights uh, is just the latest casualty in the relationship. Uh, just mention a couple other things before uh, turning back to Angela and then uh, looking uh, to see what kind of questions we have coming in. Mention NATO, of course, NATO enlargement was hugely, hugely controversial. There was an attempt even there to provide a, an arrangement between NATO and Russia. Uh, the NATO-Russia Founding Act of 1997 sought to provide Russia a place. The Permanent Joint Council was created, uh, and then that foundered uh, at the start of the Kosovo War. There was then an effort in the George W. Bush administration to resume that kind of an effort and create the NATO-Russia Council, uh, and that foundered uh, after uh, with the Russia-Georgia war in August of 2008. If you're gonna have NATO-Russia councils and they can't operate during the crisis, uh, it pretty much uh, suggests that they aren't worth a whole lot and that's uh, extremely problematic. 
and just mention one last thing in terms of the history, and I'm sure we'll get some questions uh, upcoming about G7, G8. Uh, re remember with respect to the G7, uh, it's something that Bill Clinton in the mid-1990s, as he was moving forward on NATO enlargement, thought, I need to be doing something to give the Russians, to give Boris Yeltsin something that demonstrates that I do understand this concern they have about status and about how they're being uh, treated vis-a-vis uh, -vis NATO. And so he pushed hard for uh, the expansion of the G7 to become a G8. Uh, and that body then expanded in its, uh, in, in its functions, uh, but in the aftermath of the Russian invasion of Ukraine in 2014, uh, we have seen the G8 go back to uh, the G7. Uh, and of course, uh, the G7 was going to meet, uh, potentially going to meet uh, in the United States uh, later this month. Uh, Angela Merkel, uh, among others, uh, was um, uncomfortable with coming to the United States for that meeting, and there are a number of reasons for that, which we can discuss if folks are interested. Uh, President Trump has now floated this idea of adding others to a G7 meeting in September, uh, including uh, Australia, South Korea, India, and Russia, uh, and that creates a certain uh, dynamic of its own, both within the G7 and then vis-a-vis -vis other countries such as China. Uh, while I look to see what kind of questions we've got coming on, I'll ask Angela uh, what she thinks, you know, having written about pretty much this whole post-Cold War period, uh, about these kinds of efforts to establish real government-to-government -government activity. If you mentioned Gortier and Amirden before, and then the U.S.-Russia Commission of the Obama years, this sort of idea of creating interactions across multiple agencies of the U.S. and Russian governments to try to uh, create more substance, really, to the relationship. Yeah. Um, do you think that, um, that, that, that these do have an impact, a positive impact on U.S.-Russia relations? I think it's a great question because I think one of the differences you could really see between Republican and Democratic uh, administrations in the post-Soviet period, and there aren't that many differences on Russia, or there weren't at least until 2016, is both, you know, Democratic presidents, Clinton and Obama, believing that um, they should go along with the Russian desire to have these large, somewhat bureaucratic, overweening, if you like, institutions like the Gorcho and Amidin Commission. But I think they, you know, let's say in the 90s, I think they performed an important function. Um, first of all, again, they created networks. Again, this is a relationship where we don't have that many stakeholders. We don't have those many dense networks of interaction. So we had the interaction with all the different different commissions of, or parts of the Gorcho and Amidin Commission, be it energy, be it science and technology, uh, be it arms control, be it prison reform, whatever. Um, and yet, of course, by the end of the 90s, the uh, you know Republican candidate, Ben Bush, heavily criticized the Clinton administration for creating these bureaucratic structures that sort of made it impossible to really move forward um, with an agenda and, and, and maybe institutionalize some of the corruption. But I, I think in the 90s, you know, it, they di it did achieve something. Then, of course, it went away. In the Bush administration, there were no, um, 
you know, overarching bilateral commissions. And then again, when Obama came in, it was they were resurrected pr precisely to try and create, um, uh, a, again, a denser network of experts on each side and to include a number of other issues, including sort of ideology and, and, and things like that. Um, of course, that then um, once um, you had, once Putin came back into power uh, and, and you had all the other events, the bilateral commission and certainly under, you know, after Ukraine uh, really was no more. Uh, but I think, you know, in some ways, as you said yourself, Jim, you, you needed more substance. Um, I mean, it's a broader question of, you know, what are the issues, if you, if you look now, what are the issues in the U.S.-Russian relationship going forward? Now, we can certainly say arms control is a major one. You've already talked about that, the prospect that there won't be any arms control anymore. And this is interesting. This time, it's the Trump administration that wants to bring the Chinese in and make this multilateral in a way. Uh, and of course, the Chinese don't want to, and the Russians are sort of um, on the fence about it. Um, but if that goes away, there really aren't that many other areas um, uh, you know, where we, we have a structured and a longer-term relationship. Uh, we're clearly interacting daily. Our militaries are over Syria, deconflicting um, air operations and things like that. But the, the substance is really pretty thin. Um, and I, so, I, you know, I go back and, and believe that, in fact, the personal symmetry has been a very important driver of this relationship even not talking about the Soviet era where it was important too, but in the post-Soviet era as well, because that's really been the thing that has forced the, the bureaucrats, the officials on lower levels to interact, to get something going. And in the absence of that, really not very much happens. And I would just remind everyone, um, uh, the last time uh, an American president it was in Russia was when Obama visited Russia in 2009. And the last time that President Putin was in the United States was in 2007, uh, when he went to Kennebunkport and he had a kind of a personal summit with President w, w, George W. Bush and H. W. Bush as well. So in the absence of that, we know that, um, uh, you know, Trump and Putin obviously have met um, and they haven't been able to push the relationship forward because of all the domestic hindrances to it. But I still think, see that as being probably the most important venue to get the relationship going. Um, and that all of these other fora can contribute towards it. I mean, if you go to one area where things seem to work rather well multilaterally, it's the Arctic Council. You have US, you have Russia, you have obviously the other uh, literal states there. Um, when they, they can talk about issues that are not directly political, uh, be it climate change, be it indigenous rights, be it what well, gets more complicated when you're talking about raw materials extraction. So there are some areas where they, you know, there's cooperation, but that does not seem to have very, very much of an impact on the overall U.S.-Russian relationship. So I think this is still, and again, 30 years after the Soviet collapse, it's still a relationship that's so much focused um, on the bilateral and really on the on the relationship at the highest level between the leaders. That's great, thanks. And just a reminder to the audience uh, that uh, you're able to submit questions in the Facebook chat, on Twitter, at Kennan Institute, and via email to Kennan at wilsoncenter.org. Uh, there are a couple questions sort of related to both G7, G8, and UN uh, that I'm gonna group together, Angela. And uh, so the first one is uh, from Michael Boturk, a uh, global affairs analyst. Having invited Russia to the upcoming G7 summit, 
Do you expect President Trump to push for a return of Russia to the informal body? Is Putin even interested in readmission? Uh, and then Bill Moon, independent consultant and former program manager for the CPR nuclear security program in Russia, uh, asks, today you discussed Russia's preference for bilateral engagements with the U.S. and addressed other multilateral organizations dominated by the West. But how do you think about Russia's perspectives on the P5 and its potential for arms control or stability talks? Uh, maybe I'll start just a few comments on the, sort of this G7, G8, G11, not G20 uh, issue, uh, and then uh, turn it over to Angela to talk about ways in which she thinks the peace Putin may try to do something connected with the P5 and the UN as a different format. Um, you know, I, I don't really know what to make, frankly, of this notion of, of adding uh, countries uh, to make it a G11 instead of a G7. Uh, in some ways, of course, you could argue that adding countries like Australia, South Korea, Japan, and uh, India, uh, this is something that's been discussed as sort of a way of broadening the scope of major uh, advanced democracies, which is where the G7 began. Uh, in that regard, if you're talking about major advanced democracies, it doesn't really make sense to include Russia uh, because uh, under Putin it has moved to become a more authoritarian state, and we um, still await the return uh, of uh, Russian democracy. Uh, also, um, there's, the, there's the issue of Putin's perspective on this. Uh, he uh, has not indicated a major interest in coming back into the G8, uh, in a sense, is sort of, you know, kicked out. It, it's a, basically, it's, well, why do I need to be there anyway? Uh, and of course, the G20 was created during the 2008 financial crisis to try to broaden the set of countries that would be, uh, that would be included in the world, uh, uh, including not just the, the then G8, but countries like China and others. And that's also a problem with this so-called G11, uh, Russia has tied itself to China, and uh, that partnership is clearly very important, both to Putin and to Chinese leader Xi Jinping. Uh, and if what Trump, what President Trump is trying to do by holding such a meeting in September uh, is to add to the sort of anti-China rhetoric uh, that he's been uh, using uh, in response to the pandemic and possibly will ratchet up as we get closer to the election. Uh, Vladimir Putin's not going to want to be in a position where he's seeming to be joining with the United States in something that could look anti-China, but there's an opening there with, with his presence in the P5 and, and the role of the United Nations Security Council permanent members. So, uh, Angela, perhaps you can pick up there with, with respect to that issue. Yeah, let me just say a couple of other things um, about the G7. Uh, you know, Russia was kicked out of the G7 because it annexed Crimea and started a war in the Donbass region. None of that has changed. And that's why Canada and Britain have explicitly already said Russia does not belong back in uh, the G7. Um, no other country, I think, has uh, 
uh, articulated their view on it. It is true that Prime Minister Abe, when the G7 was in Japan, wanted to invite Putin and was dissuaded from doing that. President Trump has the right to invite President Putin as the host of the G7 summit without Russia being readmitted to uh, the G7. So I think we have to remember that distinction. I wonder what's going to happen. The Russian Foreign Ministry uh, spokesman has just said, we were a spokeswoman has said, we don't know that much about it. And we don't have any details. So we'll see whether it happens and whether the other members of the G7 come. But we have to remember, as Jim said, this is an organization of industrialized democracies. And the reason why Russia was invited in in the 1990s and Boris Yeltsin came, I think, formally to the first meeting in 1996, was aspirational. It was to encourage Russia to take the path of democracy and markets, and also somewhat as a consolation prize, uh, because Russia was not going to be, at that point, <laughs> or, or any future point, invited to join NATO. So um, that leads me now to the P5 question. So Putin has raised the issue of having a P5 summit um, last year. Um, it, it was, it's supposed to happen during the United Nations General Assembly meeting in September. I don't know what the plans are for that given the COVID situation. But I think the idea there is, first of all, to reassert the fact that there are five great powers in the world. This is a view that Russia very much adheres to. Um, and it's really to discuss what the Russians call a post-West order, right? So the Russian uh, agenda here is they look at the United States, they see the United States as a declining power and one that has certainly absented itself from involvement in a lot of international issues. And the COVID pandemic has, I think, reinforced the tendency of many countries to turn inward on themselves, not the least is the United States. Um, and so it's a way, I think, to try and discuss, yes, arms control, nuclear weapons, but I think something broader than that, which is that we have to move beyond uh, you know, the world order as we've seen it and go to one that, you know, the word that the Russians love is multipolar. Because what Putin sees before him also is the emergence of a new um, uh, ally, um, axis, if you like, or a, uh, it's really a G2. It's the United States and China. It's going to be the United States versus China, given all the problems between uh, Beijing and Washington. But it's one where Russia is on the second level already. And so I think this is partly also to uh, to, to try and create an agreement that these are the five uh, great powers and they will continue uh, to decide um, uh, the world order, um, albeit uh, a different one and one where the United States plays a lesser role. So Angela, uh, Rachel Bauman from the Helsinki Commission asks us about an, uh, an institution, multilateral institution that we have. Which we didn't yet. mention, oh yes. She asks, she asks whether the OSCE has yeah. any relevance to the US-Russia bilateral relationship. I'll, I'll start with a couple comments and then um, ask you for your yeah. thoughts. Uh, I mean, it's interesting when you think back to, to the effort to formalize the CSCE, the Conference on Security and Cooperation in Europe that came out of the Helsinki process 1975 uh, and to create in December of 1994 an organization uh, that would, that was also, as we were talking about before with G7, G8, uh, also United States response of, yes, let's do this with the Russians, for the Russians, while we're doing uh, NATO enlargement, we can do something where we where we bring this institution that they and all the other former Warsaw Pact and former members of the so, uh, former Soviet republics were 
were members. That first meeting of the OCE in December of 1994 didn't go very well. Uh, Yeltsin was upset by what was being discussed at that point on NATO enlargement, and he came by, came to Budapest, where that first meeting was held uh, in, in December of 1994, and said Europe, before it's even gotten rid of the Cold War, has entered a cold peace. Uh, and uh, there, you know, there are a lot of reasons why the OSCE sort of was never able to, to really develop, but one became the Russians themselves. I mean, as the OSCE, as countries uh, within the OSCE uh, started to look at what the Russians were doing in Chechnya, uh, as the OSCE became uh, involved in uh, uh, election monitoring uh, in, to a much greater extent, uh, the Russians uh, started to uh, have less desire for the OSCE to play uh, a major role, but I don't know your thoughts, Angela, on whether or not uh, there's a place for the OSCE w with respect to the U.S.-Russia bilateral relationship, which is right. So I think the reason I didn't talk about the OSCE, which is an I think a very important institution, is because of course today um, we don't really think of of it as um, having much of an impact on the U.S.-Russian relationship, but. Having just read Kozarov's memoirs, I mean, he recounts very clearly how at one point in the 1990s, the Russians really did want to elevate the role of OSCE and to have maybe um, a smaller body at the top kind of uh, governing it. And that would have been an alternative to NATO. And of course, the United States and its Western allies were very lukewarm to that idea. So I think at various points, the OSCE has been important, certainly if you go back to the Helsinki Final Act uh, in 1975, you know, that was uh, the, the, one of the most important steps on the way to a greater East-West detente. Um, and we know that the Soviets signed on to the Helsinki Final Act um, uh, not because of the, the first two provisions, the first two baskets, and they reluctantly swallowed the third basket, which was the human rights one. And so I think for a time in the 1990s, um, the OSC, I think, could and did play um, uh, a more important role um, in terms of the U.S.-Russian relationship improving. The problem has become, just to really reiterate what Jim said, the Russians have become progressively disillusioned with the OSCE um, because they really don't like ODIA. They don't like the, offer, the Office of Democratic Initiatives and Human Rights, um, um, uh, the election monitoring and, and the criticism of things that, that, that are happening in Russia. Uh, and we know, if you look at what's happening in Ukraine, how difficult it's been um, for um, the OSCE monitors really to do their job. So, um, I, and, and, and I think the, and another potential role that the OSCE could have played and then um, it didn't for various reasons, when Medvedev made his proposal in 2008 for new Euro-Atlantic security architecture. Um, and his proposal was taken up in the OSCE, went on for a number of years, and then it really didn't amount to anything because the US and its allies saw the Medvedev proposal really as a way of diminishing uh, uh, the role of NATO and, and giving Russia uh, more of veto power, if you like, over European security arrangements. So I guess the OSCE performs very important functions, but in terms of the US-Russian relationship, I think it's only been as effective as their political will 
to cooperate on certain issues. And as we see with what's happening in Ukraine, that's just not there at the moment. Your comment on, I, it's very interesting, your, your comment, comment about uh, Kozarev's uh, memoir and the discussion about basically a steering group type of operation yeah. within the OSCE, mm -hmm. because we have a question from John Denny uh, from the US Army War College, which um, is, is the Russian propensity for avoiding multilateral organizations they either A, didn't create, and or B, can't dominate, cultural predisposition or a Putin phenomenon? If it's a cultural phenomenon, are we destined to see relentless friction between Russia on the one hand, which seems to prefer a concert of Europe approach, and the West, which has fully embraced multilateralism? Uh, I'm not sure uh, the Russians would see uh, the West as fully embracing multilateralism, but, but Angela, why don't you start on this notion of a, of a concert of Europe approach, because it sounds like- right. That's similar to this Kozarev idea. Right. So, the, I mean, if you read everything that Russians write or, they, or, the, or people like Lavrov say about, you know, a new post-West world order, it's really a combination of the concert of Europe and Yalta, right? Um, so, and, and Putin himself has said, you know, praised Yalta and said, this is the kind of arrangement we need to go back to. So it's the basic, and, you know, to come back to the OSCE, I remember giving a talk a few years ago, you know, um, uh, about, uh, you know, whether we, is it Helsinki or Yalta? <laughs> and the Russians definitely prefer the Yalta to the Helsinki. In other words, uh, a world which is divided up between great powers. Um, each great power has their sphere of influence. They recognize that they do not interfere in the other great powers sphere of influence. And whatever the other powers do in their sphere of influence really has nothing to do with us. So that is the ideal that, that, that Putin wants. Um, and, you know, is going, is a combination of the 19th century and then, you know, the, the Yalta model. Uh, and it's interesting because you now see in the U.S. as well, more discussions in print about, well, maybe we really should accept that go back to the spheres of influence. Angela, you're still there? All right, let me give her a second to come back on. Well, I, I, while we're waiting for her to come back on, I'll, I'll just... Um, I'll, I'll pick up on the on the latter part of the question, which is uh, the West uh, fully embracing multilateralism. And I would just say, you know, from the Russian perspective, of course, this is part of the argument against NATO enlargement that basically that that the United States pushed this agenda forward without regard for Russia's interests and didn't find a way to bring uh, Russia in. Obviously, there were important reasons uh, that the West had for including Central and Eastern Europe into. Uh, NATO, and uh, that included sort of not giving Russia some kind of veto over their future uh, as democratic market-oriented countries that would, uh, you know, that, that wanted to join the West, that wanted to join uh, Western institutions. But uh, certainly um, the, you know, this, this question, uh, and Angela raises this important point about, about Russia wanting spheres of influence recognized and something that the United States has not been uh, willing to do. Uh, and I, uh, I mean, even in this administration, even with a President Trump, who seems like uh, that might be something uh, that he would be willing uh, to, uh, to do, in fact, a sort of a formal recognition, uh, even that is hard for any, any U.S. administration, a president who wanted to do it because there's so many countervailing pressures uh, coming from 
uh, from within the United States, from U.S. partners, uh, as well as from, um, you know, just just basically sort of the the cultural orientation uh, of the United States on these sets of issues. Um, I will I will I will forge ahead here uh, and uh, look. Uh, for uh, we do have a number of other questions and I we have about 10 minutes left I don't know that we're gonna get to all the questions unfortunately and I do hope that that Angela will be able to rejoin but um, we have a question from Mircea Montiano how can the US bureaucracy work to push any cooperative agenda on US Russia relations when there's deep distrust of Russia and the principles uh, in this administration I, I, I would sort of I think you know we need to to look at this historically, as I'm sure you will appreciate, and think about how that's how that's gotten in the way. Um, Angela, I see you back. Yeah, I'm sorry about that. So, <laughs> my compu my computer died. Yes. Um, well, so I just read that. I mean, we got most of of what you were saying on right. I think yeah. Let me. Sorry, can I just finish that? Um, yes, I please. Think yeah, so I think it's not just Putin. I mean, I think Putin subscribes to this view, but I think this is this idea of, um, you know, not wanting to be in an organization if you can't set many of the rules. I think that, you know, this is inherently tied to this uh, Russian idea of the importance of sovereignty. And I think that's, or absolute sovereignty, which is part of the uh, spheres of influence, a few countries are absolutely sovereign. Putin has said that, and the rest of them have limited sovereignty. So that's not just Putin. I think that goes, but you can certainly see that in the Soviet tradition too. And I just mentioned, Angela, that while yeah. you were off, I, I, I had a comment about the West fully embracing multilateralism and the Russian views right. uh, about that. Uh, right. I, I had just read a question from Mircea Montiano that I'm going to actually combine with a question from Ambassador Ken Yalowitz. So. The first okay. question was, how can the U.S. bureaucracy work to push any cooperative agenda on U.S.-Russia relations when there's deep distrust of Russia and the principles in this administration? And Ambassador Yalowitz's question was, do you think a President Biden would seek a meeting with Putin and what realistically could a meeting result in? I thought I might start just with a discussion of some of the issues that arose in the 90s on this. And, and uh, Angela, given your experience uh, in uh, administrations in the in the 2000s, because uh, I do think a, a historical perspective on this question of 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 suspicion is a is a good one. I I mean there there's there's distrust on each side. Uh, there I certainly in the period of of the 90s, both when I was in government in 1995-96 and and studying that period in, intensively, uh, you had a U.S. that was often suspicious of what uh, Russia's motives were, not among everybody. And I think you saw, you saw points of tension, for example, uh, in, the, in creating the implementation force in Bosnia after the, the 1995 Dayton Accords. There were a lot of people in the US government who didn't see why Russia needed to be brought in. There was a belief yeah. that they would just, you know, sort of create problems uh, in that situation and why bring them in. And it was really Secretary of Defense Bill Perry, uh, Assistant Secretary Ash Carter. The two of them had worked closely together before coming into government. They worked closely together, of course, in government. And they felt very strongly that 
if you were going to be setting something up to deal with what at that time was the biggest issue in European security, you couldn't leave the Russians out. Uh, but they had to work hard to push back against skepticism that existed mm -hmm. in the administration. And of course, we've often seen uh, on the Russian side as well a distrust of uh, U.S. motives. So that, that issue of, of overcoming uh, has been an important uh, has been an important tension, and we've seen that the leadership on both sides have often worked to overcome that. The Bill Boris relationship uh, that mm -hmm. was so important to moving U.S.-Russia relations forward. The relationship between George W. Bush uh, and Putin uh, was quite good. Uh, I, I would argue throughout the the Bush administration, uh, even with the events of 2008, they still seem to have. Uh, a decent relationship, Obama and Medvedev. Uh, of course, then uh, the Obama-Putin relationship was noticeably uh, frosty and difficult, uh, and a lot of things were said by each about uh, the other. Uh, and then, uh, Angela, as you mentioned, with Trump and Putin, he's been constrained, Trump's been constrained uh, in his pursuit of a relationship with Putin because of, of domestic politics here in the United States, but you know, given the, the, the way in which you cover these relationships and limits of partnership, sort of your thoughts again on the personal relationships and then lead that into your thoughts on, on how you think uh, if, if Joe Biden wins the election, how he might approach this issue. So what was, what the first question is, is what about personal relationships? It's about the deep distrust. Distrust, yeah. With okay. the, the distrust of the, of the U.S. bureaucracy. Mm, How can the U.S. bureaucracy push a cooperative agenda right. when there's deep distrust of Russia? Yeah. So, you know, I think that question is complicated. I mean, in my experience, and, and knowing the people I know, and you know them too, I think there are specific parts of the U.S. Russian bureaucracy, particularly the people who for many years negotiated these arms control agreements, who even though they may have had their differences, there actually was a certain amount of trust between them in as much as they knew each other, you know, they got together regularly and they, you know, and they did this over a period of decades. So I think maybe that's a, a more specific and a smaller group. Um, but, but I think that that worked well. I think in broader parts of the bureaucracy, there certainly is um, distrust. I think in the Trump administration, it's obviously been different um, in as much as you have a president um, who has wanted to pursue this closer relationship with Russia. Um, and he's had the rest of the executive branch that have been much more skeptical. Um, and of course, it does go back to what happened. I mean, it goes back decades, but it goes back to what happened specifically in 2016 um, and, the, and the election interference and all, and all of these questions. Um, and, and so in this administration, it's really paralyzed everything, I would say. And, and they, don't forget the US Congress. Uh, the U.S. Congress has never been well inclined toward Russia. And if you think about, again, how long it took to remove the Jackson-Bannock Amendment, uh, you know, passed <laughs> in the, in, in the mid-1970s and long after emigration had been liberalized and it was only removed in order for U.S. business not to be disadvantaged when Russia joined the WTO. So I think one, and you see now with Congress, that it is now passing all of these sanctions against Russia. It's the U.S. Congress that's, that's often made these things very difficult and 
it's the subject of another conversation, why the US Congress has tended to be very skeptical about Russia. I think if um, Joe Biden is elected president, um, you know, I do think that a Biden administration would take the, uh, you know, extending New START very seriously. It would take the whole arms control. It's, it, it still remains committed to traditional arms control, even though I think it would recognize that eventually uh, you have to have an agreement that may include new players, it may include new systems, things like that. I doubt that there would rush to be a summit. I think it would be more that it would probably attempt to restore some of the channels of communication that no longer exist. Some of them were dismantled at the end of the Obama administration, and they haven't really revived um, under the Trump in the Trump administration because of all the domestic constraints. So I think in terms of the kinds of issues we've been talking about, security discussions, but other discussions as well, um, they, they would attempt to be a restoration of some of these channels of communication. I doubt that there would be any kind of summit unless there was really something substantive um, to announce, <laughs> um, unless there was agreement. And there still are going to be issues of, we don't know, what's going to happen with election interference. It's going to depend what happens in the next six months. Um, uh, and I'm not sure um, that, you know, uh, Vladimir Putin is chafing at the bit to have a summit with, um, uh, with a US president. Um, I think, um, you know, if Joe Biden wins, um, the, the Russians will clearly have questions uh, given his, you know, his support for Ukraine and given, you know, some of the things that he and others in the Obama administration didn't said. Um, having said that, um, I'm sure that if, you know, if the time were right, Putin would respond um, to, to a summit meeting. But I think it'll, you know, will depend partly on what happens in Russia too, how Russia comes out of this COVID pandemic. Uh, what happens if Putin in, is indeed on July 1st giving a mandate to stay in power to, until 2036? I mean, the U.S. is going to have to deal with all of that, too. Well, we've reached the end of our time, and that's a great uh, point to close on. So, Angela, it's been such a treat to be with you this afternoon. Uh, I know there were a bunch of folks who asked questions that we weren't able to get to, and I'm, I'm sorry for that. I hope you'll uh, find a way to follow up directly uh, with neither with either me or, or Angela uh, in, in, in uh, reaching out to us to ask those questions. Uh, it was a great conversation and it was really enhanced by the questions that were posed by our audience. And to the, our viewers, uh, just a reminder to be sure to continue to watch the Kennan Institute Facebook page for future conversations on the Facebook Live series. So Angela, thanks again for thank doing you. this. Thank you, I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you, Jim, and thank you to the audience too. Thanks to the Kennan Institute. Thank Bye, you. everybody.